Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. I'm Emmy Lederman, filling in for Mark. On today's show, we're joined by Fernanda Santos, a multilingual storyteller, author, and self-described chingona, which is a Spanish slang term for a badass woman. Santos has reported in English, Spanish, and Portuguese for newspapers and magazines in the United States, Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia. Fernanda created the Sauce Foundation in honor of her late husband, Mike Saucier who was also a journalist, author, and educator. Fernanda is now a full-time professor of narrative writing and bilingual reporting at Arizona State University, as well as a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. Fernanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Emmy. Thank you for coming. So my first question for you is, how has your cultural identity and multilingualism shaped the work that you do and the stories that you've written? Gosh, it's everything about what I do and what I write because it's me, it's who I am, right? It took me a long time to to come to the place where I am today where I see my heritage, my status as an immigrant, as a naturalized citizen, as an asset and not a handicap. I think it's common when we come from another country to want to be like the people who are here. So I always wanted to write like the Americans and be like the Americans around me. And as my career advanced, I began to understand that being from another country, having other cultural influences in my life, and also speaking different languages were a great competitive advantage. So what I try to do with it is I try to use that as almost like a barometer or compass to keep me grounded and kind of point me in the right direction as to how I should approach stories, what I should write about, so that I can cover things that are of interest to people, but not necessarily cover them in the way that everybody else has been covering. So I use that to to come up with fresh approaches two stories. So you have experience in a wide range of beats throughout your career, from New York City politics under the Bloomberg administration to the decline of violent crime in Columbia's capital. Is there a single story or subject matter that stands out to you the most? No. (laughs) I have so many stories I remember and love and A lot of times people think it's like the stories with the famous people. When you met this big name politician or when you met this movie star that stick out. And and when I think back in my career, when I think back at what I'm doing today, it's never those stories that uh, stayed with me, that have stayed with me the most. It's the stories about people who I would otherwise never have had the opportunity to meet and hear from. So for example, I was just on the Arizona-Mexico border on Friday and I met with business owners and employees of the small businesses on what would be the equivalent of Main Street in Nogales, Arizona, who have been really struggling and who really want the border to be open so that their Mexican customers can cross and talk to them. So it's really interesting to hear people uh, telling you these experiences that kind of take you behind the scenes and, and see how they operate, how their businesses operate. I 
I have great memories of a lot of the time I've spent with undocumented immigrants here in Arizona, primarily, but in other parts. Arizona is particularly interesting because of the history of oppression that the state has with policies and politics that were anti-immigrant, have been anti-immigrant. So it's really great to have watched these people who were about your age in their late teens, early 20s, when I arrived in Arizona in 2012 to cover the area for the New York Times and see them grow into activists today who played a key role in 2020 and mobilizing voters against uh, President Trump. So these are the stories I remember the most because these are the stories that teach me something. They teach me about resiliency. They teach me about turning what others might see as a horrible situation, like, for example, not having papers, not having work into, into a source of empowerment. They teach me about facing the challenges and still carrying on and smiling and, and, and being positive about it and, and believing that they can change the world. So, so I guess these are the most memorable stories I have. I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many, as I'm saying this, there's so many stories that come to mind, but I think if I had to pick one, I would say the story of the stories of the undocumented immigrants I have written and gotten to know during my my time here in Arizona. So when it comes to finding sources, how do you develop trust with people, especially when you're reporting on something as sensitive as citizenship and documentation? I start by being very honest. I believe in transparency. I think transparency is really important in journalism. You always have, should be I always strive to be honest with people I am interacting with, whether it is a quote unquote positive or quote unquote negative story. I have told people things like, I don't think you're gonna like this story, but I'm here because I wanna hear what you have to say. And I wanna give you a chance to respond. And it would be much better for you if you talk to me instead of just let other people talk for you. And many times that worked. And while people were not necessarily happy with the story, they always came back and, and said to me, at least you didn't lie to me, you were honest. And I think honesty goes a really long way. It seems like such a simple thing to do, to just tell the truth to people. But sometimes we really struggle with being honest with our sources because we feel like, well, if we tell them everything, they're not going to talk to us. Or if we tell them, that there may be negative aspects to the story or things that are not going to make them look good. They're not going to be willing to cooperate. When I believe that this is exactly why the media in many ways gets a bad reputation because people go into a story thinking one thing and then they read or they watch the story on TV or listen to a podcast and it turns out to be different than what they expected. So I'm just always very honest and I'm also a believer in two-way conversations. I don't tend to do interviews as interrogations. It's not a Q&A style type of thing for me. So my interviews generally last longer than the average interview, or so I've been told by editors, but I often get people to talk because as they are sharing with me aspects of their life that they may not have shared with a complete stranger, I also share with them certain things about my life. And in this way, they feel that they're also learning something about me as they reveal themselves to me. And I think that's important. Yeah, and one of the whole reasons that this podcast exists is because of that stigma that exists towards reporters and 
a lot of that stems this whole concept of journalists being the enemy of the people. And obviously that stems a lot from politics, modern day politics, but also people who have had individual bad experiences with the media and felt like maybe their words were taken out of context. So I really think that relationship, that honest relationship with sources is super important. And what you just said is interesting because people say, I don't like the media. I don't talk to journalists. And I always say, well, I am not the media. I am Fernanda Santos, a journalist who's here to hear you out. So give me a chance. And I do know that every time that I do that and I I have a positive impact on someone, I am helping reverse the bad reputation that journalists have acquired for the reasons you mentioned, the political climate we live in or we have lived in for quite some time now, but in, in particular in the past four years, and also the lack of transparency that some journalists have employed. It's always easier to destroy somebody's reputation than it is to build it, right? It's always easier to convince someone that you're not a good person than that that this person next to you is not a good person, then that this person next to you is someone you should trust. So that's why I face every interaction I have with a great deal of respect for my profession and myself. It's up to all of us to really build or rebuild this reputation of the business. And going back to your time reporting on Arizona, so you've reported on all kinds of topics that deal with the American Southwest, the trends of Latinx Arizona voters in the 2020 election, immigration, and most recently a housing crisis among the elderly population in Phoenix. What is it about this part of the country and its people that is most fascinating to you? I think, first of all, Arizona is so misunderstood by the rest of the country, in particular the northeast of the United States. It's There are obviously justifications for that. The state did it to itself by enacting laws such as the show me your paper laws or SB 1070 that among many other things gave police officers the right to ask questions about someone's um, immigration status. Also Sheriff Joe Arpaio who was in office for 24 years and who grew to be sort of the face of tough anti-immigrant stands enforcement in the United States. And, and there are many other examples like a voter approved proposition that forced undocumented students to pay out of state tuition, really derailing the opportunities for higher education for many young residents of this state. So there is this, this miss, there, there is this reputation that exists that really doesn't capture what the state really is about. And I have gotten to experience this other side of the state, largely because I am someone who is always looking for what others, I try to look for what I cannot find in the headlines. And I am very a very positive person who tends to believe that it's very rarely that somebody is 100% bad or that a state is 100% racist. And so where are the good people of this state? who are the, the progressive, non-racist, all-embracing people of this state. And there was a lot that I, I found here. Also, Arizona is almost a microcosm of the United States. So it's a state that is currently about 32% Latino. It's projected to become a majority minority state in 2030, which raises the question, so how do we call minority people once they become the majority? And how do we call 
Anglo white people <laughs> once they become the minority, right? So it's a state that defies so many of the labels, a state that where Republican means so many different things, where conservative has different meanings, where even Democrat and liberal has different meanings, Part in particular when you compare to places like Boston and New York where I lived. And uh, it's also just a really beautiful state. It has a rich history, a history that brings together all these different forces that are kind of colliding right now. Mexico, it was, this was part of Mexico until it was given to the United States as, to end a war, as a resolution to a war or sold to the United States, although I think it was for a meager amount. But anyway, it has a large, very large and very rich Native American population and culture. So there's just so much here that I have learned about this country, that I have learned about myself and learned about people that I just couldn't find any place else. And, and it, it just keeps up every day. There's actually this morning, I opened my email just before we sat down to talk. And there was a press release about a news conferencing, a conference happening outside of the state legislature to discuss some voter uh, voting laws that are, are going to be, in my opinion, they are voters. So, but, but I always say, gosh, here we go again. Why are we doing this? But then at the same time, I felt what the resistance in the state now is strong and well and alive and rich. And it will be interesting to see what's going to happen here. So for all these reasons and more, this became really the place that I felt I needed to anchor myself for a while and explore this country and learn about this country. Yeah, so shifting a little bit to this country in general, what is it about journalism in the U.S. that is different or distinguished from your time reporting in other countries? I think primarily that I feel very, in spite of everything here, I feel very respected as a journalist. And I feel that I have incredible power as a journalist to impart change in people's lives, whether it be small scale change or significant like policy, federal level change. In Brazil, where most of my reporting happened before coming here and then in the countries from which I've reported, in particular Colombia, where I spent some time doing a series of stories. In Mexico, I don't necessarily, I, I don't necessarily feel as respected as a journalist in the sense that there isn't the level of reverence and, and fear, for lack of a better word, of what a journalist's work could bring out. And maybe there is fear in some places like in Mexico, but then the other institutions and among these institutions that include the, the, the cartels, they then exercise great amount of violence and kill journalists regularly and so, or scare them into silence. So that's another difference here. I feel very safe doing my job, whereas journalists in other parts of Latin America and other parts of the world, not like Western Europe, but but I would guess that in parts of Asia, Middle East, it's also very dangerous to do this job. But, but I know for a fact that in Mexico, in Brazil, in Central America, it's still dangerous to be a journalist. So I guess the fear exists, the fear of what a journalist's work could do, but there is the, but the violence 
becomes a weapon to silence the journalists as they do their jobs. And I don't think that they could get away with that here. Your book, The Fire Line, The Story of the Granite Mountain Hotshot, honors the 19 men who died on one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. In your TED Talk about the book, you describe that the firefighters who died in the Granite Mountain hotshots had, quote, a sense of purpose that was greater than each of them as individuals. Can you tell us about why you felt such a strong connection to this story and these men? Yeah, so I was covering this story as Phoenix Bureau Chief for the New York Times and went to the part of Arizona, central Arizona, where the fire happened and then Prescott, the hometown for this crew of wildland firefighters. And one day we were taken to what they call the deployment site, meaning the spot where they died, they deployed their fire shelters, these cocoons that are supposed to withstand very high temperatures, not direct fire contact, but very high temperatures. And so these firefighters deployed, these 19 firefighters deployed their fire shelters, but they, they couldn't survive because the fire literally rolled over them and, and a very aggressive wildfire. So when we got there, I noticed that the area where they had died had been um, closed off by a chain link fence, essentially to preserve what is hollowed ground. But it, it, they didn't want people stomping around, uh, searching for it. We didn't even know exactly what was there. It was very, fairly recent that the deaths had occurred. And, uh, and while everybody was so fixated, or at least a lot of the journalists asking questions, were so fixated on who gave the man the orders to go down a mountain into a canyon where they ended up being trapped by this fire. I was much more interested in finding out why is it that none of them ran. They all died in, in a very tight space. If I recall it correctly, it was something like 30 feet by 24 feet. And uh, they all died together. And, and I became very intrigued with that idea of being part of a team, a team that you believe in so much. That team truly becomes you, that your identity or your life as an individual in that moment is not what comes first. What comes first is being together. So I believe they were trying to save themselves together. But I also believe that they knew that the chances of saving themselves uh, were very slim, yet none of them ran. And that was what kind of stayed with me. Who does that? Who doesn't pick up their pack or drop their pack? They carry very heavy packs, 40, 50 pounds, and just try to make a run for it. Those men were very young. Three of them had wives expecting their first child. A large, I believe six of them were not even were 21 or 21 years old. Most of them were under their 30s. So they had a lot of life to live, little kids at home, wives, just a lot of years ahead of them. So it became, I just became very curious. What is it about them or about this team, which really became the character of my book, the team? What is it about this team that makes them, made them make a choice to stay together instead of trying to save themselves individually? On your website and in your newsletter, you talk about your path to rediscovering joy after your husband's death. What does this process look like to you and where do you find inspiration and maintain your strength? I'll start with the second part. I find inspiration and strength in my daughter every day. She is. She was eight when Mike died. Mike was from Massachusetts, from a small town near Worcester called Northridge. And uh, he was a journalist. 
He was really the reason I stayed in this country. And he really created in our home the idea of country, of United States, of America, that I had come here believing in a place where everyone is equal, where if you work hard, things happen for you, where you are valued for your skills and for what you contribute, not because of your last name or because of the color of your skin. Of course, that's not how it is out there, but I always had that safe space to go to and talk to him about things and hear him many times even counsel me about how to handle with the very strange ways in which people reacted to me at times. It's, I think, disconcerting for someone who believes that there is such things, such thing as a hierarchy of power based upon one's skin color or ethnicity or national origin. When they see someone like me, who is an immigrant from Brazil, curly hair, brown skin, who speaks four languages and is working for the New York Times or has a master's degree from Boston University, has power in many ways. And so Mike was really helpful to help me navigate all of that. So when he left, when he died very uh, abruptly, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died 30 days after his diagnosis. He was 46, we had all these plans for the future and our daughter was eight. And I found myself with her, looking at her and thinking, how, what am I gonna do now? How do I do this? How do I raise this child in this country that was still surprising me because of the way, and still surprises me because of the way it people choose, choose to treat other people? And how do I raise her away from my family? My family, my whole family is in Brazil. And my daughter always gave me this sense that of, she always looked at me as if she trusts me, kind of like, you got this mom. I never felt from her any type of trepidation about decisions I've made or not made, about even the moments that I was crying and sad. I never sensed in her a lack of faith in me. And when you look at a little person and you realize how much that person believes in you, not in like just a blind mom way, truly believes in you, then I said, this is it. I have all that I need. I have a child who is an amazing child who had the great fortune of having an amazing dad and who is very resilient and believes in me in a way that I never thought anybody would. I'll never forget one thing she told me, and I've always been very honest with her too. We talked to her about even my trepidations about staying in this country. Should we go back to Brazil? Should I go home? Where is home? And, and where? what do I do? And I remember one time she looked at me and she said, mom, you make home wherever we are. And I thought, wow, it, it's so simple and so obvious, but I never really stopped to think of that. We can just make our home wherever we are. And then we were in Arizona and I figured I'm just going to make our home here. And so, and so it all led to where we are today. She's 11, almost 12. She's thriving. We miss Mike every day. We talk about him all the time in a really kind of positive and good way that doesn't hurt as much anymore. And I kind of feel, you know what, we're going to be okay.
For you, writing seems to be both at the core of your professional career and also an emotional outlet. How do you get past the anxiety that often comes with writing? I just have to do it, right? <laughs> like, I think that a lot of times the anxiety comes, these days for me for sure, the anxiety comes from the weight of the responsibility of having, of being the vessel through which stories are broadcast to a big audience. And also the feeling that no matter how much I write, how deeply I write, I could never fully capture every single thing that I experienced. So I just tell myself that it's okay. You will never really truly capture everything that you've experienced. Even when you write a book, you can't really capture everything. You still have to make choices. But I've experienced that and those things have made me better. So next time, when I go out reporting and talking to people, I'll take that with me and I'll use that to inform my approach to the stories, my questions and so forth. And the other part about being the voice, that, the, the megaphone that amplifies stories and issues and conversations, I go from telling myself how scary that is to telling myself how awesome it is that you're the one who has this opportunity, that your voice, your perspective, your approach is the one that's going to be broadcast out there for people to hear and for people to, to learn about something, or it's my approach that's going to give people some, some food for thought. So I'm just really grateful. I just tell myself, stop being silly, stop being insecure, believe in yourself, believe in your reporting, believe in what you learned. You're not writing for anybody. Write with your words, write in the way that you know how to write, pour your heart out. Then if it's too cheesy, an editor can always help you smooth things out, but, but put up, believe that you can do it because, because you can. So I just kind of do this little pep talk with myself. You seem to be someone that believes there is always room to learn and grow. As a professor at ASU, you, quote, teach the next generation of journalists and learn to be a better, more tolerant, and more patient person every day. What does this look like for you in your everyday life? I never thought that I would love teaching, but I love teaching because teaching has made me a better writer. Every time that I, it's one thing to know how to sit down and write a story. It's another thing to be able to actually teach talk to your students and break down the process so that they can learn something about storytelling. So it's a great, it's been a great experience for me as a writer, obviously, as a professor, I'm an editor. I tell my students, I'm your editor. So I'm here to discuss your stories, help you frame your stories, give you a sense of direction, and then really edit structurally and do the structural editing, the idea editing, the line editing. So it's been a really great experience for me. There was leadership involved, a lot of great things involved. But what I really love the most, well, I, I should say there's this other side that I also love, which is just being with young people every day. I teach two courses. Each of them have classes twice a week. So I'm here at the Cronkite School Monday through Friday every week. And I've been here since August, even in spite of the pandemic, teaching in person to those who decided to come in person. And, and it's pretty awesome to just talk to 20 some year olds and, and learn from them about their perspective uh, about the world, learn how they interpret things that are happening, learn about the incredible amount of compassion that they have, the 
this is such a malign generation, but such a misunderstood generation, in my opinion. My students are incredibly thoughtful people. They know how to work collaboratively. They know to not be bound by ideas of gender or looks or race or whatever you want to say that they have bound so many people who came before them, including myself. And, and they're just super curious. And it's just a great exercise every day to come to class and, and interact with them. I mean, many of them have graduated, gone on to get jobs, and they, they still reach out to me. One of them reached out the other day. She works at a very prestigious news organization, and she's thinking about her next steps. And she's, can we get on the phone? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And and so it's been really, it, it's really great to develop these friendships and, and relationships. Plus they help me stay woke. They like, I hear all the ways they talk and I ask them things about my daughter and I learn their slangs and their IDKs and TBHs and all the little like language from text messages that my daughter uses. And I don't need to ask her what they are. So she thinks I'm super cool because I already understand all the little abbreviations that she uses. So yeah, I'm really happy. It's, it's been a great experience for me. What is the most important lesson that you want to teach young journalists? To believe in yourself and stay true to yourself, write who you are, come as you are, write who you are. Don't be afraid to be, to feel that you're being too biased or too this or too that because you're an immigrant writing about immigration, because you're a black man writing about the way police treat black men, or because you're queer and you're writing about issues that affect LGBT, LGBTQ plus communities. Bring what you have, bring who you are, embrace it, be aware of that so that you don't skew too much to not in the interest of not skewing too much to one side or the other, but in the interest of coming into stories with a knowledge that only you can have. We spent too much time, I spent too much time in my young years as a journalist, tried to excise all of that from me because I thought that I needed to not be who I am in order to be a good journalist. And I think that it was the greatest mistake I ever made. If I could have go back in time, I would have, I would change that. Although that's what allowed me to grow too. So maybe I wouldn't change it, but, but if you're young and hearing this, don't change yourself, bring yourself, embrace yourself, accept yourself, be aware of your biases so that your biases, so that you are, you go into stories informed and always remember that it's in who you are, that you will find the freshest, most interesting, most compelling ways to report stories. Thank you so much. And we end the show every week with this question. Is there an organization or person related to journalism that you are not affiliated with that you would like to salute? That I'm not affiliated with? Well, there are two. Can I pick two? <laughs> I really encourage everyone to familiarize themselves with URL Media. It was founded very recently by a dear uh, friend of mine, Mitra Kalita. And URL means unity, hold on, uplift, respect, and love. And they report on mis misreported, underreported, misrepresented communities. It's a great organization. Really, truly love and believe deeply 
in the work that the International Women's um, Media Foundation, and they provide grants for women to report on stories all over the world. They provide training for women and they are incredibly, they have empowered so many great journalists and so many great, have produced so much great reporting. So if anyone is uh, considering donating to an organization, this is definitely one to consider, or at the very least to look up and uh, see some of the great work the women journalists have done there. Fernanda, it was a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much for coming to the show and for your time. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. I feel confident in my journalism, so just that alone, I think, is in large part due to his teaching. Brian Hirschberg, class of 1998, is now the managing editor of Enterprise at Barron's. He was the editor of the student newspaper right after the school transitioned from Trenton State College to the College of New Jersey. This name change caused an uproar among the campus community and was covered by professional publications. One of the big controversies was how it was done during the summer. There was no students around, no one was around to protest. Point two was that there was a legal controversy over it because that had been the original name of Princeton. Dr. Cole helped Brian and the rest of the staff report on the subject thoroughly and objectively. As much as we hated it as students, we couldn't necessarily take a position. We could kind of just give the facts. It happened in the middle of the night. It wasn't done above board and we don't even have the rights to the name. So we had to treat it like a real world issue and not let emotion get in the way. And he, I think, helped us understand that. He was engaging and the things he taught you were enduring. It sounds like a cliche, but I really don't think a day goes by that I don't draw upon some level lesson that I learned back then. I think that was in large part because of the way he he taught. It, it stayed with you. I'm Emmy Lederman. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.